0: Welcome back to GLF Live, the official podcast of the Global Landscapes Forum. In today's episode, we're bringing the spotlight back onto climate justice. We covered it in episode 8 with US Climate Action Leader Varshini Prakash, so be sure to check out that episode if you haven't already. The link will be in the description. This time though, we're zooming way out to see how we can advance the climate movement beyond its usual homes in rich countries and make it accessible to everyone in the world, from people with disabilities, to racial and ethnic minorities, to rural communities in the global south. Joining us is another very special guest, Joycelyn Longdon, an activist and PhD student at the University of Cambridge and founder of Climate in Colour, an online education platform and community that makes climate conversations more diverse and inclusive. And now it's over to our guest host for today's episode, June Camayo. So the Youth in Landscapes
1: Initiative and the Global Landscapes Forum have teamed up to To create the global, uh, to create youth-led episodes for GLF Live and share with the, with the world, wonderful proj- projects that, and initiatives that young people all over the world are doing. So we are happy today. We're super, super, super happy today to welcome the amazing Joisting London, uh, the founder of the educational platform Climate in Color and PhD, um, to coordinate at the University of Cambridge so welcome Hi. welcome so much Jacqueline we are so happy to have you here today <laughs> thank you for having me yeah so um i'm a huge fan of you like a very huge fan of you and uh so i know i'm a fan of your work and i uh, i really uh get inspired and motivated by your work but i'm sure some people in the audience really don't know more about you and they would like to know more about you so would you like to share a few words about your work and your story
2: Yeah, so hi everyone, I'm Joyce Lynn, Um, I run the page Climate in Colour, but with that comes a lot more things, it's kind of spiralled into a platform, um, courses, videos, newsletters, reading groups, um, and obviously lots of stuff here on Instagram, workshop facilitations, talks, panels like this, Um, so it's really expanded into... um, uh, I guess multimedia education platform and I really use that space to talk about the intersections of climate science and climate justice and to also amplify, I guess, the links with oppression, colonialism, capitalism, racism um, that, that are prevalent between climate science, um, climate solutions um, and the current climate emergency that we're facing today. And I'm also a PhD student at Cambridge University. And um, my program is called AI for environmental risk. Um, And my PhD specifically will be looking at the application of bioacoustics and machine learning um, with indigenous knowledge for forest conservation. So really looking at listening to the forest um, and co-creating that research project with um, communities in Ghana, which is where I'm from. Well, where my parents are from, but it's close to my heart, and so I'll be going back there to to do forest conservation uh, and technology work.
1: Yeah, thank you, thank you so much. It's it's just so awesome to see how your work is very intersectional. Like you just cover everything and everywhere. It's it's just <laughs> not like your home. It's just not. It's everywhere, and everyone is involved. Yeah. I mean, that's very, very Yeah. So, me <clears throat> Oh, personally, I'm really, really curious to know like what motivated you to start uh, Climate in Colour and what you're wishing to achieve uh, through this platform. It's, it's like a very beautiful and very colourful platform. So, yeah.
2: Um, thank you. Um, I guess what motivated me to start the platform was actually getting in, into my PhD programme um, because I'd always been interested in climate and in sustainability on a personal level. But I hadn't ever, you know, started a platform or anything. Just like everybody, you know, anyone who's interested in climate, I tried to make the right decisions in my own life and I tried to educate myself and I went to marches and things. But um, before that, I had done a lot of racial justice work because I guess I felt that's where I could use my voice and that's where my voice would have been the most impactful. But as you know, I said, I'm educating myself and I'm learning more and I'm also you know, applying for my PhD. I'm writing my personal statement, I'm doing prep work and I'm really understanding more and more these intersections and that actually my racial justice work is not at all separate to my climate interests. Um, and I, I really started digging deep into that. And when I got offered a place on my course, I thought, well one, I'm now in a really privileged Position, uh, having privilege I've never had before growing up, you know, in London. I went to a state school, my family do not come from money. I'd never had this privilege of going to such a, you know, prestigious university. And it's just in my nature to want to, <laughs> I guess, challenge all of these systems. And I thought, okay, so I, you know, I just get an email and I have access to all the information that I could ever want on climate. Um, but that, but as a a normal person outside of the university, I didn't have access to it. So that's just seemed crazy to me that just by being accepted into this place, I now have access to so much more really important information. And I wanted to be able to share that information in a way that's accessible because even if most people had access to that information, it is so just inaccessible and it is written for academics, it's written for policymakers. it's not written for the public. Um, So I wanted to uh, have a space to democratize that information, but also the key thing that was missing was that none of those works were really talking about this sort of intersectional lens, about the climate justice lens, especially from the more scientific side. From the sociology side, there was a lot of talk about intersectionality, but my department's computer science and, you know, a huge amount of the work that goes into telling us the 1.5 degrees that goes into the policy is from the science side. Um so I wanted to really bring these things together and I had already been quite creative. I'd always, you know, I did design, I did marketing, I did in between my undergrad and this degree. Um, so I wanted to use all of those skills and bring them together to really create a space where people could have access to information that they needed and information that was diverse and not whitewashed. Um, and yeah, I guess the aim is to make sure that people are curious and conscious and challenge systems and challenge the information that we have in order to make better decisions and advocate for better lives for all of us i guess
1: yeah yeah i yeah i I, I just really like, really get what you're saying i 'm also a scientist, so i really understand i i understand sometimes the the first of all the intersectionality of like just bringing science and and climate justice and all this like the social justice it's it's just so hard, like, people don't understand. Scientists, some scientists don't get that, and some social, like, people don't really understand what the science is. So, yeah, that is a really, really, really important thing <laughs> that we needed in, in now in our society. So, as I said, I'm scientist, and I know, like, how data and information, like, really plays a big role about everything we do in our society today. So, like, cred- credible and relevant information is very necessary in guiding almost everything like everything decision making policies laws and every everyday decision in everyone's life like even my myself today have to have like some information so i can make some some decisions so sometimes this information (laughs) is available only in technical reports as you just said with a lot of like jargon and it's shared in most ways that a lot of people really don't understand like someone would Times, like the recent NPCC report, not everyone really understood it. Like very few people understood that, that report. So what like, sometimes we would like, now we would really love to understand uh, about the climate in color. You've, you've shared a little bit about it. So is uh, like, is the way, um, in the way, the way, what you wanted to really uh, to strive to make how you was in climate in color, how you strive to make information accessible and easily like found by everyone i don't know if i've, I've really put the question in I, I yeah i think, <laughs> I, I,
2: think I understand um, i guess um with time in color just by the nature of sharing information, lots of different ways because like just you know even if you just think back to school like you don't understand things just in one way like everyone understands things differently some people are really visual which is why like i love making it infographics and using that as a springboard you know not but that's the only place you'll get your information, but it will highlight you to new topics, new um, information that you might not have been aware of and, and encourage you to do more research you know, on your own past that, but also through videos, um, through audio, um, through talks and workshops. I love doing um, talks and workshops and really having conversations and discussions with people. And recently I've been doing a lot more talking um which has been really really great i think the key things about accessibility is not assuming knowledge not assuming that words are obvious not assuming that phrases are obvious but really making sure to like break down every single part of what we're saying because i think the tendency for scientists and not even just scientists like even activists on social media platforms is to talk from a place of like assuming everyone knows what you're talking about like say cop like I was speaking to my godfather the other day and he was like, what is COP? You know, Um, not feeling, not kind of getting so caught up in your bubble of your information because for the most part, you know, what I'm doing every day, I'm reading climate papers, forest ecology papers, conservation papers every day. Someone who works as a photographer is not going to be reading those every day, so there's no point in me speaking in a way that would not, you know, discount them being able to understand it um and i think i find it really frustrating and i think that's why i'm so passionate about this because i find it very frustrating when people communicate things in a in a way with lots of jargon just so that they can sort of prove that they're no more than you or that you know when you wouldn't know how to understand what they were saying if they only just used a layman's terms but it sort of becomes this egotistical thing of like proving to you that you are not them because they know more than you and I just like I don't I I don't like that and especially for me during my education like I've always you know done well I've always done well at school but it, it takes me a struggle you know I'm not just naturally bright I have to really really work hard at it and it is it was always so frustrating to me and caused me a lot of distress because people would speak to me in this sort of blanket term Um, And then I'd have to go away and work for hours to try and figure out what they said. And then at the end, I'd be like, oh, well, I do get that. Why didn't they just say it in a straightforward way? Um, So, yeah, I think that's, that's the key motivation to making it accessible. And also other accessibility. So, like, for visual impairments and making sure that everything is accessible to people. All the courses online have transcripts so people with screen readers can access it. It's just... Being and obviously i'm not saying I'm perfect, I'm sure there's much more I could be doing to be accessible, but it's really making sure that no one can no one is left out of the conversation just out of ignorance or out of trying to be sort of a gatekeeper of that information
1: yeah so so um I mean personally, i'm now like getting inside i'm also starting to think, you know <laughs> this is what I can do, so maybe if you'd like to share with us like some tips and some tricks that maybe we can use to make this Information there out there accessible.
2: Mm-hmm. I think the main one is just about the terminology, you know, and making sure that um, there's there's so much jargon, so many so many acronyms, you know. COP, what does COP stand for? You know, when you're speaking, especially with people who maybe not aren't experts in that specific field, it's just as easy as oh, you know, COP Conference of the Parties. Basically, it's just a big climate conference, like following the jargon with just a really quick explanation that is not that hard to do and just brings everyone into that conversation or like I don't know 1.5 degrees basically the temperature that we need to the, the world needs to be at in order for us to be safe you know just adding into the conversation when you add when you put in some jargon or something that's very specific and technical um follow it up with a definition any word that you see that it seems technical just follow it up with a definition or highlight it with a definition or link it to a definition um, just to allow people because then you know if they know it already then it's no harm and if they don't know it then they're able to um, go further and explore it a little bit more so um, that would be a main tip and then I'd say just um, uh, engaging with pages with people with certain disabilities so you can understand from them what it is that they need uh, in, in, in different circumstances um and yeah i guess is this like more for just personal conversations or like organizations as well because i think it's different when there's organized like bigger organizations because they can do a lot more just with resources so like currently it's really hard for me to provide like different language um unless i'm putting something on youtube say or on instagram where it can be translated Um, But say if I had more money, if I was a bigger organisation, I might be able to offer more languages. And so it's being aware, you might not be able to cover every accessibility right now, but it's looking for the alternatives, looking for things that you could possibly do. Um, Yeah. And and responding to feedback as well, because you won't know it all. Um, So it's fine to make the mistake. It's just, you know, changing that um, once you've been uh sort of months it's been highlighted
1: yeah thank you i, I hope i hope everyone has had has had that <laughs> yeah thank you so much jaceline um <clears throat> so i this is now we're just going to the interesting part <laughs> so the the climate in color team have designed this online course on colonial history of of climate. but now when we talk when we have these conversations about uh like, the historical reasons behind climate crisis we like they don't, we don't really touch upon the colonialism, like slavery and racism. We just, uh, we just talk about, you know, the, the 1.5, you know. <laughs> so, so, like, personally, I think history sometimes, like history, not sometimes, even now, history in this like space is really necessary to address the climate and social injustices that are there right now. So, like, could you tell us now, like your top three, learnings that you gain while, while now exploring exploring these linkages uh, while creating this um yeah. yeah yeah
2: yeah so yeah i'm just looking at my notes here but um i think one of the main ones is that profit and capital were really like the key drivers behind pretty much all of the oppression that people and communities did feel and are also currently feeling um and there are just countless examples of you know c- capital and profit and colonialism are one and the same. they like drove each other that that's why I did this course the Colonial History of Climate, because climate informed the colonial project, and the colonial project was motivated by profit, so they're all interlinked um, and I think that understanding how much and being aware of how much money and profit lead to the oppression of others is so important. And the one that I bang on about all the time, just because I am doing forest stuff and I'm, you know, my forest stuff is centered in Africa. So, you know, we have these carbon offsets, these offsetting projects and, um, specifically ones for for tree planting and, and for forest plantations. And, so many communities have suffered at the hands of those projects. Um, and those projects are driven by capital because it, it, it gives a market. And of course, if it was for the capital for the community, that would be a different story. But in a lot of these uh, scenarios, the community will be waiting two, three, four, five years to receive their chunk of money. But the company who pays for it can continue polluting uh, without a care in the world because they've done something good um and and that is a form of colonialism because it can at times verge on being a land grab where a community is kicked out of their land because it has now been chosen to be created uh, as a carbon offsetting planting scheme and there are countless other examples like this which is why i did the course because you know we might go oh yeah yeah i'll just pay x amount for a carbon offset but without really understanding the impact of that And also understanding like the drivers of our own behavior. Why am I doing this? Am I doing this because I wanna just be out of responsibility or am I prepared to make the actions? Sorry, my phone is uh, going a little bit out of charge. But um, yeah, are we prepared to make the actions that are um, actually impactful? So that was the first one, the profit and capital and that driving oppression. Um, The third one is that relationships with land um oh yeah this one I found really funny again was the relationships that we have with land in the west you know this huge um move to small holding to organic farming which I'm not bashing that at all like obviously that is great but so many more people want to follow those um lifestyles including myself but you know speaking to my uncle again um who who you know most of my family grew up in Ghana um and things like you know planting onions between crops to uh ward off certain pests when uh the country was colonized, that was seen as less than that was seen as you know, oh, how can you be not so uh, sophisticated to plant in a more intensive way and now we 're going back there and saying, "Oh, have you heard about organic growing <laughs> you know it's like that was again something that I found very funny, was this like this cycle of people in the West or in the Europe or, or US where you know, for indigenous communities or local communities, um, what was once uh, disregarded has now come to the forefront. And we need to be really careful of that because people are oppressed for the same things that we now uh, uh, champion. Um, so again, that is being wary of that, and also where these things are coming from. So, permaculture, etc. Don't just take someone in Britain's word for it. Of course, they might be a great expert and have a great example, but it's really about digging into like where all of this stuff comes from, so we can honour the people who, uh, you know, are at the head of it, um, and keep them honoured whilst we're doing whilst we're doing those things as well. And then the third one was that colonial behaviours persist today. So that we're not under any misconception that colonialism is done, it is not done, it is just different, and it is happening everywhere. And that we need to be very vigilant about the actions that we take, but also the actions our governments, companies are also taking to ensure that we're either calling it out when it's happening, or making sure that we ourselves are not engaged uh, in those actions. I mean, it's it's really hard because obviously, like the uh, offsetting stuff, not many people know about these projects in the long run and what happens at the end. And it's, it's part of globalization, you know, we don't have so much of a local connection. We don't know absolutely everything about the supply chain of the products that we buy. So it's much harder and you have to be, you have to choose whether you want to spend more time researching and making sure that what it is that you're investing in or buying um, does, it is not part of that colonial project because it, it might well be, and even me with my research, there was so much I have to do even though Ghana is my country even though I feel a connection there there is so much there that could be uh an echoing of colonial behaviors that you really have to like uh sit down with yourself and be reflexive and just you know sit deeply with yourself to just assess and evaluate uh, how your actions are going to have an impact on the world but also on other people um so yeah those are my three
1: takeaways <laughs> i mean you you have so much wisdom <laughs> <laughs> i i can't I can't even like add anything or recommend anything. I think <laughs> for that, you just need to go back and everyone needs to just go back and just sit down and redigest all those things and when you say like colonialism like is still there, and there's like a new form of colonialism now, and like And it's, it's, I think it's even worse than, I mean, I I was not there for, for that time, but (laughs) now I I just feel (laughs) it's it's just, it's, it's just so unfair anyway. So I hope, I hope really like for me, I just want to sit down and internalize all those points that you've said and thank you. You're you're really wise. (laughs) So I have another one. Mm -hmm. So the climate, uh, the climate justice movement has been growing like, has been really growing the past uh, couple of years now do you think that it's, impos- it's possible to talk about or dream about uh, and fight for climate justice doing the same work for racial social and for racial and social justice at the same time
2: i feel like climate justice is all of those in one i can't see them it's like it's it's mixed it, it's then inseparable you know um climate justice is all of those things um and I'm really and truly, like you know, we say climate justice, but and and I think that that puts off people who feel like climate is an identity, right, but like you hug trees and you do this and that, and oh, shut up, you just you know, I don't do climate stuff, but actually, you know, especially in the black community, when we start when we're talking about our racial justice stuff, it's climate justice and that and that's you know, how I came to this, because I was doing so much racial justice um, work and also like growing up low income, so much class justice work in in the UK, but also around the world, like all the issues, (laughs) like every social issue can be brought back to climate and climate can be brought back to all all social issues, if that makes sense. Um, So I think that you can't do one without the other. And it doesn't mean you have to be an expert in all of them like i could not be an expert for um like disability justice i'm i would hope that i'm an ally and i want to learn and edgy and you know educate myself and be as uh supportive as possible but i am not i cannot i'm not disabled i don't have a disability so i cannot speak on that injustice um and i think that puts people off as well because they think oh well i don't know anything about racial justice but it's like it affects us all, and we're all a community, and we should all, you know, speak when you uh, you have the knowledge, and then listen when you don't. It's this like reflexiveness of not needing to know everything, but being prepared to learn anything, you know. And I, that's the approach that I take. So I think with climate justice, it's really not you can't separate it from any other form of injustices because those who um, are more vulnerable. Uh, they will be the ones suffering the most from any injustice, including the climate crisis um yeah so so that's that's how I think about it yeah
1: thank you thank you uh i mean when you when you've just been saying all this, I was just thinking i don't know whether this really applies here, but I was just thinking of the of the ubuntu the I am because we are you know we cannot do one without the other, so <laughs> we that just, justice is justice, regardless of yes. what it is, justice is justice, so yeah, yeah. So thank you. thank you, thank you so much, Jocelyne. Um, so for you, apart from being the founder of Climate and Color Platform, you are also a scientist, <laughs> yeah? a very pretty scientist. <laughs> and you have worked on some really, really, really cool uh, research projects. So uh, we understand that you just uh, started working on your PhD and which will focus on interface between Western science and traditional knowledge for climate crisis. So, and we know the latter, <clears throat> is often excluded from major reports and decision-making processes, despite the proven relationship between the two of them. So, so <clears throat> we are curious today to hear your thoughts on how traditional knowledge and scientific data can be integrated to address the climate crisis.
2: Yeah. Yeah, well, it's, it's really an interesting experience for me because obviously the philosophy of my work, it feels completely natural to me. I don't really understand how you can make decisions about other parts of the world without co-creating that with the people who live there. Um, that sounds obvious to me, but I know of just one other project from a computer science perspective that has done this, and that is Itiki, Itakee is a project, Um, I can't remember where she was from, either she was from Botswana or Zimbabwe, somewhere around there, and it's a drought prediction tool using machine learning and indigenous knowledge about, yes, about uh, crops to support farmers uh, against drought. Uh, And they use traditional knowledge and machine learning algorithms uh, to create uh, uh, an app and a product that can support farmers. And apart from that Can I
1: can I interrupt you for one minute? I am also studying environmental engineering and my research is the same as what you've said. I'll be using machine learning oh. <laughs> to to predict yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'll be yeah, so I'm so excited Now you can continue. <laughs> wow, okay,
2: okay. So now there's a third. I found the third. <laughs> That's really, really cool. Yeah, yeah because I mean, I'm sure there is much more, but just in in, in what I've you know uh, engaged with so far, um and the pushback that I'm getting, <laughs> uh, it's, uh it seems like it's not something that um people in the conservation space really want to do, or or actually less the conservation space and more so the computer science space. Um But essentially for me, I'll only explain it through my project. My project will look to, um, as I said before, use acoustic sensors within the forest. So to listen to the forest, Um, specifically listening out for um, biodiversity indicators. So the richness, the amount of different sounds, different species who are calling, who are making vocal sounds in the forest as as a proxy or as an indicator for the biodiversity in that in that region, and also more specifically, like specific species classifiers. So to track the the population of a specific species, um, but all of this in in creating in, in uh, collaboration with the community. So understanding where are the places in the forest that it would be appropriate to put census, and where would it not be appropriate. What is specifically are questions that the community wants to ar- ask and answer. Uh, are there any specific uh, points where they think we should actually be looking very much here. Maybe it's mining in Ghana, mining, for, uh, deforestation for mining is big. So um, it's really every stage of the project design and the experimental design is made in tandem with the community and with their knowledge. Um, because you know, say in a normal project you might um, go, put your sensors down, collect the data and then go back uh, to wherever you came from the UK say. Um, And that it just skips over the fact that people engage with the forest, people have a connection with the forest, and so much insight and so much conservation insight will be lost um, in in those scenarios. Um, And, and, yeah, and and that is typical for, for lots of projects where the community is actually left out of any of the inquiry and that their knowledge is not seen as science or scientific knowledge or not seen as expert knowledge but i think you know what is the definition of expert you know it's not just someone who goes to university they will be more experts than me and so many different things um and so it's really honoring that and making sure that at every stage of the project they're involved
1: yeah so so uh when when you've just said the way uh, people go and just go to the, the get data and do all those things without in, involving the community it's some something similar that i faced when i was just going to do some reconnaissance on the field work and then i met someone and then i was like you know I me mean, i'm doing this is like ah you guys you always come you just take data you just collect but you never come back you don't give us your results you don't show what what's happened you don't show you yeah. don't tell us how we, what we can do how our like how whatever we are doing is helping. like you know that yeah. people especially researchers they just go and just and find whatever they want and without yeah yeah. For me, yeah. Exactly. Like,
2: my work is grounded in lots of social theory, so even like the number of times I will go to do my field work and the length of time I'll go to my field to do my field work is based not just around um, my actual data collection, but it's based around forming relationships and not just going once. And you know, part of my funding is put towards going back to present my results. So across the board, everything is like how can this be the most collaborative project possible and how can I honour the knowledge of the people there um and go in humbly uh because I'm not I'm not an expert, you know I, I might be have some expertise somewhere but I wouldn't go in and think that I'm an expert. So uh yeah yeah.
1: So thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah and, and I mean I what you're saying is like honestly The truth what is really really happening everywhere and and i think yeah it's high time we need to just change all this and you know i'm a i'm a researcher i'm working with this person from this village and we are working together it's not like i'm a researcher i'm just doing this research oh i'm 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 collecting data i'm doing this and there's no and like you just get information from them and you don't even appreciate them you don't show them yeah so yeah yeah so true so So uh, uh, there's, there's also this other big part of uh, discussion about um, technological fixes, mm-hmm. such as the machine that mm-hmm. absorbs the carbon in the ground, electrical cars, nuclear mm-hmm. fission, negative emission, technologies, and many more. Mm-hmm. As, as I can say that technology is like a two-way thing. Like, it cuts both sides. Yes. <laughs> it, it brings the good and also brings the bad. So my question is just, like, the way we have these cool technological fixes that are around the machines that are the carbon capture machines, electrical cars, nuclear fusions, and all these uh, technological uh, fixes that are there. So do you think um, focusing on only these technological fixes can really address climate crisis? No, no, no.
2: no. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because um, I get interviewed quite a lot by, like, um, news sites. And because they see that I'm doing a technology degree, they think that they have got me and they think that they are gonna get a really good response from me about, you know, what's one technology we can make, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they get very surprised <laughs> when I start laying in quite hard in, in technology because actually my research is really critical of technology and that, that's why I'm doing it. Um, Because not enough technologists actually critique technology. So many technologists are just so blown away. And, and this is not to say that technology isn't amazing. I mean, I've done STEM. My, my first degree was astrophysics. I love science. This is not to say that science has no use. Um, you know, science is the backbone behind a lot of the things in our world, a lot of, a lot of uh, progress in our world. Um, but, and the big but is that we make technology so separate to humans. We think AI is this ethereal thing in the ether and, you know, all of these different technologies, we think they're just these like, you know, just things floating in the atmosphere and and actually we forget how much responsibility behind technology is with the human. And humans are fallible and humans are biased and humans are racist and humans are sexist. And humans have all of these prejudices which become encoded in technology even in ways that you, you might not think of you know that it would be obvious um and so yeah that's just my rant about technology but in terms of the technology fixes with climate change um i think it's interesting that we want to fix like a crisis that was caused by industrial scale production with like industrial scale technology like you can't just fight fire with fire and we need to take a holistic approach because um as we've said it, it, all of these issues are incredibly intersectional there's sociology there is healthcare, there is uh econo- economy there is child care child rights you know there's so much uh that intersects that technology couldn't possibly fix these issues um and even if all of the all of the carbon was sucked out of the uh atmosphere we would still have climate change we would still have issues we would still have environmental degradation and it's not losing sight of that um so that's not to say that they don't have a place somewhere i mean i'm not the biggest fan but it's not to say that they don't have a place somewhere but i think that we are we would be very very uh um ignorant to think that we can just rely on that, and I actually don't think it's ignorance. I think it would be avoidance, and it'd be actually quite violent to rely on technologies to fix this crisis, which is a you know
1: yeah, yeah, i think yeah, technology cannot 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 do any like all of it it, need, it needs like a helping hand, and yeah. also I wanted to also tell you, I also did uh, physics for my for my bachelor, <laughs> I think we should be wow. best. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, so that's, that's honestly, that's true. Technology is not like everything, everything it needs, like for us as, as human beings to also use our human being good side of our human being to, to come in and, and, and support it, like push it a little bit and bring the social part of like everything to, to just push it a little bit. And thank you so much. Thank you so, so, so much for your kind uh, for sharing your wisdom with us And knowledge and experience so now let me see if we have some questions in chat for us okay we have one here Uh uh-huh this one is okay i'll just ask and then you you see if you can answer so someone asked how do you think developing countries will be able to reach the net zero emission when their fundamental concern remains in developing the economy
2: i think that a really important Uh, aspect to keep in mind is that um, we're not all on the same playing field and uh, the the time with which that we need to reach um, is not all the same. That's not to say that uh, developing countries uh, can't have rigorous and can't have really ambitious targets but the UK has already had you know plus 100 years on top of everybody else so it would make sense that they have plus a hundred years, you know, in front of everybody else for uh, for the change. Um, and, you know, I think actually this question gets asked a lot and it, 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 it avoids the fact that actually developing countries are doing already so much. If you think about Africa, Africa already fronts 80% of the finance for adaptation and mitigation in Africa. So when we're talking about aid, Africa, you know, this billion, a hundred billion climate budget and it's being touted as some sort of charity. It is not charity, one, it is a debt owed and two,
1: they're still already
2: paying it themselves. Like they haven't received the funds. So I think it's interesting to always use this question of like, oh, well, you know, what should they do? Because they're actually already doing stuff. They're already doing stuff way outside of, you know, their responsibility. Because obviously, you know, we need to um, keep our environments uh, for the health of, of those communities is important anyway. Um, but of course, economic it, you can't have it without economic growth, not for developing countries. Like, that's just not an option. <laughs> um, you know, they have people to take care of, communities to take care of. And it's really about how um, we can move in a way that is equitable whilst employing these um, more, more sustainable, carbon-cutting um, actions, and and I think that not enough credit is given for the actions that are already being taken by developing nations. It's not to say all of them, but and I'm speaking, I guess, more from the perspective of Africa, uh, but but yeah. And the other thing is, is that we can't only think talk about carbon. I think someone just put this here. Someone in there, in the front lines of protecting their land. Where are all of the carbon sinks? They're in the tropics. All the forest carbon sinks in the tropics um so when we're talking you know it's the climate crisis is not just a crisis of carbon it's one that we're focusing on yes and it's really important but it's not just a crisis of carbon um so you know if we're going to think about it holistically what really is everyone contributing to and who is taking care of most of the world right now um and i think that that is mostly the developing world and the people who are making the mess is the developed world so you know it's not to say that action shouldn't be taken but it's it's a question that i think needs some questioning
1: (laughs) yeah it needs some more questions like some more questions on there (laughs) yeah and then you talk about the debt in in like developing countries i mean i personally feel like i'm i'm paying for that debt Mm, myself exactly it's it's the debt is just too much and it's growing every day here oh we've, we've taken another loan wanted to, to build a road oh my god <laughs> you're just so tired of this then okay. anyway <laughs> thank you thank you so much um so now we will go to the last question and then say bye. Uh, so, <clears throat> so if you could say one last thing, one thing to the decision makers and the world currently in Glasgow for the COP26, what would that be? Like one message to the leaders in Glasgow now for the COP26. One message. Wow. Well, I'm gonna be
2: sneaky and do two. One is end fossil fuels. Stop fossil fuel subsidies. Stop fossil fuel involvement in. You know in our lives being the predominant uh you know yeah just lobbying fossil fuel lobbying any of that greenwashing needs to go but again i'll repeat one of the main things that i will be speaking about is this framing of the developing world again i'm coming from mainly african context but i will be hammering it down that this is not charity we need that 100 billion and we need uh not just the money but good uh workflow to get that to the people who need it. It is not charity. UK is not climate leader. US is not climate leader. These Western countries are not climate leaders. Uh you know, it's not that it's not that they're with such benevolence giving us raising money for African countries. That's not the case. It is a debt that is owed and it needs to be paid and that's what I'll be saying.
1: Yeah and you drop the mic. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for 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 this, and thank you so much everyone for tuning in and for this inspiring conversation. And before we go, I would like to encourage everyone to go to uh, uh page, the Climate in Color Instagram account to learn more about her amazing work and also find a small surprise. She has something coming up for you guys. So you can see her account in the chat there. You can find her there at Clement Color. And yeah, everyone go there and find your surprises. She has really nice things over there. (laughs) So once again, thank you so much to the Global Landscapes Forum and the Youth in Landscapes Initiative. And to all our amazing audience for turning on, for turning in tonight and engaging. And of course, we are super, super, super grateful for the Climate in Color team and Jujicelynn for taking your time to be here with us. So, so now, yeah, it's, it's that time to say yeah. bye. <laughs> Thank you for having me. And bye. You Thank you.
0: Bye. bye. If you liked what you heard today, stay tuned for our next episode where we'll be joined by three young climate activists to discuss everything from their hopes and dreams to the power and strength they find in their communities. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or Stitcher, and reach out to us on social media with the hashtag Live. And for everything you need to know about landscapes, ecosystems, and climate change, check out our website at globallandscapesforum.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.